Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a good and glorious God. That you are the holiest of holies. That you do reign over the heavens and the earth. We gather here this morning to worship you. Feebly, albeit, but through song and prayer and the proclamation of the gospel, we desire to bring you honor and praise this morning because you are God. You are worthy of it. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have gathered here today, for the visitors as well, that they would hear you, that your voice would resonate deeply in each of them, that you would speak to them exactly what they need to hear, a word of encouragement, a rebuke, hope, We thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, and we anxiously look forward to his great return. And to that end, Lord, I pray that you would fix our eyes as we look at this passage from 2 Samuel, cause us this morning to look for him, to desire him, to seek his return, and in so doing, live holy lives now by your grace. And your power, in Christ's name, amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, Second Samuel, open up. Your being here this morning is something that God had ordained sovereignly before the foundations of the world. And it is an amazing thing that his children can come together and they can gather for the distinct purpose of worshiping him. And we do that here on Sunday morning. And so I I, I praise God for your presence here. I know it is not by chance. And if it's not by chance, then it's for a purpose. And if that purpose is to worship him, then let's worship him this morning. I pray you already started this morning when you got put your feet on the floor and you realized that God gave you another day of life. And then you said, thank you, Lord. And you got in your car and you got here safely. Praise God for that. You're here and we had a chance to already pray and sing and hear the scripture read. And I pray also now that we will listen, that we might hear God and that we might be changed by God to worship him as he calls us to worship. If you haven't been with us, if you're here visiting, we've been working through this incredible book in the Old Testament called 2 Samuel. And it has to do with the, the life of David and the reign of King David. And we just finished a really ugly episode in chapter 18 in the beginning of 19 where his son Absalom tried to take over his throne. And, and Absalom came to war with David and his men and Absalom lost. And now we find Israel without a king. Absalom's dead. They had named him king. David's still in exile. And so Israel is without a king sitting upon the throne. Now, when we use the term Israel here in the context of this passage, it's being distinguished from the tribe of Judah. When when you hear Israel here, it's talking about the ten tribes to the north, and Judah is the tribe to the south. Now, Israel has already gone out to David, and they said, we want you to come back, we want you to be king. But interestingly enough, Judah had not made any word to him yet. He hadn't said anything yet. And so here the king is waiting for all 12 tribes to call him back, especially Judah. 
Now, we, we have an idea of why Judah would be reluctant. I mean, it was in Judah that Absalom made his stand, right? It was in Judah that the re- rebellion took place. It was in Hebron, which is in Judah, that he was crowned king. He went to Jerusalem, and he was ruling from the capital city. And so they were afraid that David would come back and exercise revenge, retribution. Look at verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 12. David wants to reassure him, reassure all of them that he's going to come back graciously. He says, you are my brothers. You are my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Now, David could have gone back with just the support of the north. That would have been sufficient. But he wanted all 12 tribes to not only have a right affection for him as king, but have a right submission to him as king. So it wasn't enough that he had just the northern tribes. He wanted Judah as well. And so he's able to convince them of the grace that he will bring back. Look at verse 4. It says that, that he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and your servants. And so there's this movement back, bringing the king back, all 12 tribes desire him back. And so David goes to make his procession back into the promised land, and he goes to the river, the Jordan. And as he gets to the river, we have these three encounters by three men. Shimei, Methibosheth, and Barzillai. All three we've met. And the entire sermon today is going to be these three dialogues that these three men have with King David before he comes back into Jerusalem and into um, Israel to reign as king. They all had something to say to David, and David had something very specific to say to them. And the one thing I want us to get from this entire sermon as we work through these, these characters, I want us to see clearly that how we relate to Jesus Christ now will determine how he relates to us when he comes again in glory. How these three men treated David and related to David, they will see that corresponding response when the king returns. So too with us when Jesus Christ, the king, returns. And so I want to contemplate that that encounter we will all have with the living God when he returns again in glory by looking at Shimei, Methbosheth, and Barzillai. And I want to look at it in three ways. One, I want to look at Shimei's worthless works. Number two, Methbosheth's sincere love And number three, Barzillai's generosity. Worthless work, sincere love, and a biblical generosity. Let's look at Shimei first. Now, if you remember, we first met Shimei back in chapter 16. Shimei was that fine fellow that escorted David out of the land by throwing rocks at him and cursing his name. Remember Shimei? Shimei was of the clan of Saul, and he hated that David was king. He said in chapter 16, verse 7, He cursed David, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And he made it plain to everyone that he hated David, and he hated David reigning as king. Well, there's a problem now, because this man of blood, this worthless man, is coming back to reclaim his throne. And so Shimei realizes he better take action quickly, or he's going to lose his life. And so he does something interesting here. He grabs a thousand Benjamites. This man has some power and authority. He gets a thousand Benjamites to follow him. He grabs Ziba and his entire household, probably not the best company to be in given what Ziba did to Methbosheth, and he goes to the river first, and he gets there first. 
before anyone else, before anyone from Israel shows up, before anyone from Judah shows up, he's at the river waiting to escort David across. And not only does he get there and wait, he and all his men, they forge the river by themselves, they cross the river, and they immediately begin serving. And then we're told, look at verse 18, we're told that Shimei, the son of Gareth, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. And so the first thing that he does, he goes back and, and he acknowledges that what he did against David was wrong. He says, I've sinned against you, I'm guilty. And he's asking the king here not to remember his sins. He's asking that he might receive mercy instead of justice. Now, this is the right initial response. Everybody wants to approach God, wants to approach Christ the King with this understanding that we recognize our guilt before him. We must recognize what Abiashai says to David, this man deserves to die. He said that the first time, remember, the first time he said, take off his head, and now he says, this man deserves to die. Shimei comes before David making that proclamation with his mouth. But look at what David says at the latter part of verse 22. David said, Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. The king And the king gave him his oath. Now on the surface, this movement looks fantastic. We say, this is amazing. Here this man sinned against the king. He comes and he's serving him and he's seeking forgiveness. And, and there seems to be reconciliation. David forgives him and it seems fantastic. And tell you, look at 20 a little more closely. Look at verse 20 again, the latter part of verse 20. Look at the justification in Shimei's eyes as to why David should forgive him. He said, Behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet you, my lord and king. He's saying, Look, you know, I, I, I beat everybody else here. I was first. I brought a thousand men with me. That's how serious I am. I forged the river by myself. I'm sir, I served you immediately. I was the first one to serve you. I was the first one to come and bow down before you. I was the one who said to you, I have sinned against you. You see what Shimei is putting his hope in. It's not in David's grace. It's in his own good works. I was the first to be down here. So what's missing? What's missing from this interaction? It's a heart of repentance, of true brokenness over the sin that he brought upon God's anointed. In fact, the whole the whole dialogue seems contrived as you read through it. And, and maybe David thought him sincere and, and granted him pardon. Maybe David realized this would be political suicide for me to kill this man in front of a thousand Benjamites and all those sitting on the other side of the river because they were afraid he was going to come back and seek vengeance. Maybe. Whatever David's thinking was, Shimei, we know, based upon 1 Kings chapter 2, was going through the motions. He was engaged in religion. He was saying to David, look, I came before you and I did these things that you might not put me to death. But David said there'd be no death on this day. He didn't talk about what would happen in the future. And from the character of this man as it plays out through the rest of Scripture, and from Solomon's dialogue with Shimei in 1 Kings chapter 2, we know that Shimei was never loyal to David. He never loved the king. He never submitted to God's anointed king. In other words... He came before David. He was first on scene. He bowed down. He served him. 
but he remained thoroughly disloyal because his heart had never been given over. He had never truly submitted. You say, well, wait a minute. In, in, chapter two, in verse 20, he acknowledges his sin. Look, it says, for, for your servant, this is Shimei speaking, for your, your servant knows that I have sinned. And that's an acknowledgement. But we can acknowledge our sin before God and not be broken over it. We can admit that we're, we're guilty as sinners, but not seek true forgiveness for it. True repentance, which is turning from it. We don't see any expression of a hatred for sin here. We don't see any expression of Shimei's sorrow over the fact that he, he cursed David on his, on his way out of Jerusalem on in his, one of his lowest points in his life. He was there, as you know, to save his own skin. He had no heart after God or God's anointed. And this resulted in David's final words. You know what David's final words to his son Solomon were in 1 Kings chapter 2? It's about Shimei. It's incredible. So you can really twist this story if you don't read through, right? I imagine there are pastors who would preach this. Shimei, he came before God, he sought forgiveness, and he was forgiven, but they didn't read through 1 Kings. Listen to David in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. This is what his last words to Solomon. He says, do not consider Shimei innocent. He says to Solomon, you are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. In other words, he's saying, execute him. He had never turned. Solomon did just that, and Shimei was put to death. So what happened? It looked right. I mean, there was confession. There was service. What happened? What happened? The same thing is happening this day in churches throughout this country and the world happened. And I would argue many today, because it's Mother's Day, have gathered in churches for that distinct purpose. What happened here? Religion happened. Religion. I will do this for you, God, if you do this for me. I will bow down to you, David, if you do not kill me. I will bring a thousand Benjamites if you do not slay me. I will serve you. I'll be the first of the river if you do not kill me. That's religion. That's bargaining with God. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. And that's not what the Bible teaches. How many Christians this morning have gathered in churches and said, well, I've bowed down in the waters of baptism. I've received the communion. I've confessed my sin, but have never truly repented. We can confess with our mouth, but never repent in our heart. How many have never known, never really known, this day in churches, how many people have never really known the depth of their sin and the holiness of God? How many have never submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord? How many have never received the forgiveness and the grace? I mean, really received it. And they can say, I know him. I mean, I know Jesus. I know his holiness. I know the sacrifice and I know his love. How many go through the motions They gather on Sunday mornings. They get baptized. They receive communion. Maybe even make a public confession. But there's no love for the Savior. There's no love for Christ. And there's no love for the Word of God. And there's no love for His kingdom. There's no love for Him coming again in glory and crossing that Jordan and taking His seat as King. There's no love. Shimei foolishly thought that he pulled one over on David by his acts of contrition. He didn't fool David. We know that. He was executed. Nor will anyone fool Christ on the day that Christ returns when he crosses the river. You say, how do I know this? 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, verses you've heard me read multiple times. They're some of the most striking verses in all of the New Testament, I believe. I know they grabbed me early on in my faith. Jesus said, how many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, this is the day that Christ returns. This is the Shimei and the Mephibosheth and people coming before Jesus. He says, how many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? You can, can't you hear Shimei? Lord, did we not come to the river first in your name? Did we not bow down in your name? Did we not confess in your name? To which Jesus will say, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Those are terrifying words, by the way. I think I could argue effectively those are the most terrifying words that anyone would ever hear. God say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. No works, no religion, no false worship, no public confession can save you. They're all worthless. As we had a chance to sing, only the grace of God offered through the blood and broken body of Jesus Christ has the power to save a man from hell. Only Christ has the power to save you this day. Only Jesus and his work. Shimmy eyes represent millions of people this day. I pray you're not one. I pray you're not one. If you call yourself a Christian and you believe you have a right relationship with the king, you say that with your mouth, but you have no real love for Christ, I mean a real love for Christ, you have no love for the things of God, you have no love for his word, you have no love for his work, the ministry that he brought, the great commission that he's called us to, if you are relying upon a public confession or a baptism or communion or church attendance, then I say to you in all love, you're in grave danger this morning. You're in grave danger. And I pray that before this service is over, that God would save you. I pray that he would show you his holiness. He would show you the depth of his sin and he'd show you the glorious Savior. And that before you walk out those doors this morning, that you would call yourself a Christian and know that you're a Christian that you would say that you're saved and you'd know that you're saved, that God would make you alive in him. What a glorious way to worship him this morning. Would that not be? All right, so first point, I want us to see that Shimei's end is a hellish end, literally. He engaged in works and religion and it is worthless to save a man's soul. Second, I want to look at Methbosheth and I want to show you true love for God. Mephibosheth, point number two, his love. You remember Mephibosheth, don't you? How can you forget a name like Mephibosheth? I mean, I can barely say it, let alone we might not forget it, right? He was the crippled son of Jonathan that we encountered back in chapter 9. Remember, David said, is there anybody from, from King Saul's estate that I can bless? Any, any, any lineage? And they said, well, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was crippled, is still alive. And so David calls him into his presence and he blesses him. He blesses Mephibosheth with Saul, King Saul's entire estate, which would have been worth millions back then. He makes him a, a very wealthy man. So Mephibosheth finds David at the river too. I don't know if it was before. We know it was after Shimei because Shimei was the first there. Right? 
and he comes to him disheveled. Look at verse 24. Latter part. Mephibosheth, he had neither taken care of his feet. That means that they were filthy and the toenails were grown long. Yeah, you can make the face. That's appropriate. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard, which was against Levitical law, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day came back, till the day he came back in safety, David coming and returning. And so why would he do that? It's kind of weird. You know why. Back then and oftentimes now, when someone is suffering, when someone's in, in, the, in the throes of great grief, they, then it was right to have your external appearance express the internal sorrow and so from the moment that David left until the moment that David returned, Mephibosheth, he wanted to express to all the world how grieved and how broken he was that his king was gone. So he didn't wash his clothes, he didn't trim his beard, and he didn't take care of his feet. David could see that from his state. Like weeks or months had passed. Look at verse 25. So David asks him, and this is the question that we want to know. Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? Right? I mean, David and all his servants left, and we thought that Mephibosheth would go. It was a legitimate question in light of two things. One, how David had blessed him with the estate of Saul. And also, remember what Ziba said to David about him? I'll, I'll read it to you back in chapter 16. David, on his way out of town, ran into Ziba. And Ziba told David a lie. David says, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. It's a lie. It's not true. Mephibosheth explains to David what we already know, that Ziba was lying. That Ziba had deceived Mephibosheth. In fact, look at verse 26. Mephibosheth answered David. He says, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. He said, Ziba deceived me. He lied to me. And then in verse 27, he says, He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. And he's, he's lied about me. I wanted to come. I wanted to be with you. Now, unlike Shimei, Mephibosheth comes before David with a sincere, broken, contrite heart. It's a glorious scene. He was unwilling to care for himself. His ill-kept feet, his unshaven beard, and his soiled clothes revealed to David that although Mephibosheth was not with David physically, he was with him in spirit, and that they walked this struggle together. For Mephibosheth said, I will not bathe, I will not care for my feet, I will not wash my clothes, I will not trim my beard until my king returns. It was a glorious expression of his love, and, and risky. He's in Jerusalem with Absalom, and Absalom surely saw this man grieving externally for the king, wanting him to come back. So this was a risky maneuver in the presence of such an angry king, Absalom. And yet even as Mephibosheth is answering the king's question, he just stops defending himself. Look at verse 27. He says, But my lord the king is like the angel of God. He says, Do therefore what seems good to you. Just stops the defense altogether. And then he says in verse 28, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table, what further right have I then to cry to the king? And Mephibosheth says, I'm of the line of Saul. I deserve to die. I know that. You've already been so gracious with me. 
You know, what, what right do I to have to complain to you at all, to cry out to you at all? He says, I know I should die, and you've shown me nothing but pure grace. Our position before Christ is the same. We ought to be able to come before him and say, I know I deserve death, but I want grace instead. So Mephibosheth stops defending himself and he acknowledges his utter dependence upon David. Verse 27, do whatever seems good to you. That's such a glorious verse. He says, do whatever you think's best, king. You want to kill me? Kill me. You want to cast me out? Cast me out. You want to bring me back? Bring me back. And so David did something interesting. The estate that he had given to, to Mephibosheth and then given it all to Ziba when he was move, heading out of town, he splits it and gives half to each. And you say, well, that's not fair. Ziba shouldn't get any of it. Should all go back to Mephibosheth. And I agree. But look at, look at Mephibosheth's reply in verse 30. Look with me. Mephibosheth said, oh, let him take it all. Since my Lord the king has come safely home. I think this is the most telling verse in the entire passage. Mephibosheth, I, I, don't, I don't care about my physical state. I don't care about my name or my reputation. I don't care about the fact that he lied and he deceived me, Ziba. And he says, I don't even care about the money, king. I don't care about this. He says, you're home. You're safe. And I'm with you. Do whatever you want. Do you see how glorious that is? His physical condition, his monetary position, his reputation meant nothing. Mephibosheth loved the king more than he loved himself. He loved David. He really loved him. He was so thankful he was home. He was so thankful he was back. Not because of the blessings that he pour out, but because now Mephibosheth could resume his relationship with the king. Sitting at his table, enjoying his company. This was his simple offering to David. It was a heartfelt gratitude to the living God for delivering the king safely home. It was an expression of love. His ill-kept feet, his ill-trimmed beard, his filthy clothes... It was an expression of love, and David saw it, and David got it. Now, some of you may be saying, but he didn't do anything. I mean, he didn't do anything. I mean, at least Shimei, he was there. He brought a 1,000 men. He served the Lord. He bowed down. At least Shimei did something. All true, he did. But his heart was dead. David saw the sincerity of Mephibosheth's offering in that Mephibosheth did what he could He did what he could, and it pleased the king. The expression of love was received right in the eyes of David. For those of you who know your Bible, in Mark chapter 14, Mary had been, she was chastised by the disciples for taking this very expensive ointment, it was a perfumed oil, and pouring it on Jesus' feet. They chastised her for it. Remember that? Listen to our Lord's reply. Jesus said, leave her alone. And I imagine he said it curtly. Leave her alone. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. And then he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mary did what she could for Jesus And he loved her. In fact, the expression was so profound to Christ 
There's no other attachment in the gospel that says when the gospel goes out, Mary's actions will be remembered. She did what she could, and it pleased the Lord. Mephibosheth did what he could, and it pleased the Lord, and his story is still being told today. Dale Davis, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, he he talks about a story that Don McClure, who was a, a missionary to Africa, to the Sudan specifically, a story that he shared about this young man doing what he could. He tells of a young man named Orop. He was a boy, and he lived near the Sudan mission. And he, he enrolled in the school there with Dr. McClure, but he was unable to learn anything. He couldn't learn the alphabet. He couldn't read, and there was limited space, so he had to give up his place in the school for someone else to come in. This is a good story, so I'll get it. He so desired Christ that he'd come and sit outside the window just to hear the stories of Jesus, to hear the Bible stories. And then he'd go out into the village and he would gather other kids and he would preach to them. But he was screwing the stories up terrible. They were all messed up. And so Dr. McClure goes to him and says, you've you got to stop because you're saying things that are not biblical. So he tells me you have to stop. He forbids him from telling these stories. But then Orop received his call. Dr. McClure told him that whenever he would go out to share the gospel with the other villages, he wanted Orop to carry the Bible. He said, carry my book. So they went out together every morning, and, and he would show up, evidently, Orop would show up at, at the doctor's house waiting for him so he could go. What did he do? He, he did what he could. He did what he could. Well, not too long after this, some boys were playing in a nearby river, and a crocodile latched onto one of the boys, and everybody fled except Orop. And the story is incredible. He jumps in and is able to set the boy free, but all that's left of him is an arm and a leg, to which his mother takes and buries. But before Orop suffered that end, he had said to his mom, I'm not afraid to die. He said, I know that when I die, Christ will come, and he'll take me by the hand, and he'll take me home. That testimony led to his mom coming to a saving grace in Christ. He said, well, what did Orop do? He did what he could. He did what he could, and his story is still being told. He couldn't read, he couldn't write, he couldn't even retell a story. But he could carry a Bible, he could fight a crocodile, and he could testify to his mother. What did he do? He did what he could. I will argue that the Methbosheths, the Marys, and the Orops of this world are glorious to God. They're glorious. They, they had so little to offer, but they offered it all. They had so little to give a strangly beard, an alabaster jar of oil, and the carrying of God's book. But each did it with a heart filled with love for Christ, a sincere love for the Lord. And it was received by God joyfully. Despite their limitations, they gave everything they had. How much, my beloved, do we have to learn from the likes of Methbosheths and Marys and Orops. How much do I have to learn from these faithful saints? 
We're told that when Christ returns, the books will be open and your story will be retold. It'll be retold. Will Jesus say of you, as he did of Methbosheth, you did what you could? Ladies, will he say of you, as he did of Mary, she did what she could? Young men, young boys, young ladies, will God say of you, as he did of Orop, they did what they could. I pray that we will not be remiss in the time and the gifts that God has given us, however limited they may be or however grand they may be. I pray that we will, as a people who profess a love for Christ, do all that we can while there's still light in this day. So first, I want us to see the worthless works of Shimei. They were worthless I want you to see the glorious love of Methbosheth, and it was glorious. And the last character I want to bring before you is Barzillai, and I want us to see his divine generosity. Now, you might not remember Barzillai from the sermon last week because I did not talk about him, and I did not talk about him because I was planning on talking about him today. But maybe you've read about him. When David and his servants arrived in Manaam, they had traveled a great distance, and they were exhausted. And there were a few gracious donors who came to Manam and brought supplies. Barzillai is one. He was an 80-year-old, wealthy, Gileadite farmer, and he came down to bless David and the resources. I'm, I'm going to read to you. This is from chapter 17. Look at what they brought. It was no small offering to the king. Now, this is a king who's on the run, this is a king who's no longer king because Absalom has been crowned king. And so what Barzillai is doing is treasonous. It's dangerous. But look at what he brings. In, in 2 Samuel 17, we're told, verse 28, that they brought beds and basins and earthen vessels. They brought wheat and barley and flour and parched grain and beans and lentils and honey and curds and sheep and cheese. They brought it all. And they said, we want to refresh you, king, enabling you to go back out into battle and reclaim your throne. Their blessing, the blessing that, that, that Barzillai and the others brought was instrumental in bringing about the victory against Absalom and the return of the king to the throne. Now, in our passage today, we find Barzillai is the third person that goes down to the river. Now, there are thousands there. Judah's gathered, half of Israel's gathered. We know that Shimei is there with a thousand Benjamites. We know Methbosheth is there. And now Barzillai shows up as well. And he wants to escort the king back across the river. He just wants to say goodbye to him, wants to see him. David is so struck by this man's generosity. Look at verse 33. The king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. You know what he's saying? He says, come live with me. Come and live in my palace and sit at my table and eat my food and enjoy my conversation and we'll be together. He's 80. He says, until you die, come be with me. Come live with me. It's a glorious invitation. Barzillai expresses to him some concerns he has about his physical limitations. And then he says in verse 37, please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. And then he says, but here is your servant, Kimham. It was likely his son. 
says, let him go over with my Lord the King and do for him whatever seems good to you. Verse 38, David agrees. He takes Kimam, and then he says to Barzillai, listen to this, the latter part, look at the very last part of verse 38. David says, all that you desire of me, I will do for you. The king says to Barzillai, it's an open check, my friend. Whatever you need, whatever you want, you pick up the phone, you call me, it's yours. Blessings upon blessings coming back to our 80-year-old farmer friend. I would argue that in his 80 years in serving God, he had not served him in the way he had in these last few years. What a gracious gift. He was altogether devoted to God's anointed because he loved God. And what happened to him? He found his, himself immeasurably blessed in the process. In other words, he couldn't outgive the king. He couldn't outlove the king. Was he generous? Incredibly so. We just saw that verse. But the king says, I'll give you whatever you need. I'll give you whatever you want. Did he love the king? Absolutely. But how much more David expressed his love for him. He couldn't outgive him and he couldn't outlove him. You say, well, what does that have to do with us? You have a king that you cannot outgive, and you have a king that you cannot outlove. You say, how do you know this? Matthew chapter 19. In fact, if you want, turn with there for me. Go to, go to Matthew 19. This is an incredible passage. In, in Matthew chapter 19, the Lord had encountered the rich young ruler who came to it and said, Lord, Lord, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And he goes to this great dialogue. This man leaves because he's worshiping the idol of money. Jesus teaches them how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples rightly say, look at verse 25 in Matthew 19, the disciples were greatly astonished and they said, well, who then can be saved? This was a very righteous man who came to Christ. They said, who can be saved? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Not possible to be saved by man. But then he said, but with God, all things are possible. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we, talking about the disciples, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now listen to verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The interaction between David and Barzillai resembles the interaction between God and his children, between Christ and his disciples. Jesus reveals to them, he says, listen, when I come back, when I cross the Jordan, and when I sit upon my throne here on this earth, he says to the disciples, you 12, you know what's in it for you? You're going to be sitting and on thrones as well, and you'll be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, and everyone else who has come and followed me, who's given up home and possessions and, and relatives, who's given up everything for me, who's given generously for me, he says, you will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And you say, now if you're listening close, you'll say, wait a minute, I'm going to call foul here. 
Because we just looked at Shimei, and it sounds like you're advocating that approach. Right? I mean, we just established the man cannot be saved based upon his good works. That's religion. And we know that. Ephesians 2.5, Colossians 2.13, Romans 5.6, they all reveal clearly that we are dead in our sins and transgressions and God has to make us alive. You can't work your way back into good grace. So how can Jesus say in verse 29, how can he say this? Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That sounds like pure religion to me. Shimei tried that, and he ended up dead. Certainly, Pastor, you're not counseling us to follow that path, and I'm not. We cannot inherit eternal life by our own works. So then you might be saying, as the disciples said, well, then who then can be saved? With man it is impossible, but not with God. With God, even sinful, reprobate, God-haters like us, we too can be saved. But not by our works, but by the work of Christ. By the work of Christ. Jesus Christ is the true Methbosheth. How so? Jesus Christ did what he could. You know what Jesus was able to do? You know what the Son of Man was able to do? Some things we are not I'll just give you a few. First and foremost, he was able to die as a substitute for our sins. Why? Because he's perfect. He didn't have to die for his own sins. So he'd go before the Father, he could give his own life that he might die for our sins because he had none of his own. And so he could say to God the Father, punish them, don't punish them, punish me because I deserve no punishment. And he did that. He did that. Jesus Christ was able, out of his love for us, to enter the grave and experience the full measure of our physical and our spiritual death. Everything we deserve as sinners before a holy God, dying physically, dying spiritually forever, ever, and an eternal lake of fire, Christ was able to do that, to take the full measure and then rise. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You cannot die and rise from the dead apart from Christ doing it first. And you cannot die and rise from the dead apart from Christ raising you. He did what he could. Being raised from the dead, he can pay our punishment in full and he can grant to us forgiveness and mercy. He can impart to us the power of the resurrection that we might live holy lives just as he is holy. Because of our Lord's radical generosity, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and, and God raised him and then he ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God doing what he can do. And he is able, like Barzillai, he's able to offer you right now spiritual food and nourishment and supplies to keep on going. To engage in this battle. He provides us with the power of his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. He provides us with the nourishment and food of his word. He provides us with the encouragement and comfort that comes through prayer and the community of believers. He's able to do these things. He provides us with the means of fighting, fighting our flesh, overcoming our sin, and not just fighting it. He equips us. He's able to do this. He equips us 
to do battle victoriously, like David's men marching into the forest of Ephraim and victoriously winning over the the numbers of Absalom and all of Israel. He equips us to do that now, here, for your sake, for the sake of his church. He's able, as our high priest, to intercede on our behalf so that when we go before him, like Shimei did David, and we say, Lord, do not remember my guilt. Do not count my sins against me. Christ is able and willing by his grace through faith to grant that request, to truly grant it. The psalmist said it best, Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. That's what Christ is able to do. Christ was able to come and live that perfect life and die that sinner's death and rise and ascend and bless us immeasurably now and forever. He's able to do that. So there's only one question that we must ask before we close. And you know the question, it's the, it's the, the, the axiom I started this sermon with. Will you be ready when he comes? When the greater David comes? David, in our story, his return to Jerusalem was imminent. We know that. He was the anointed one of God. It was only a matter of time. The return of the greater David, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, his return is imminent. It's only a matter of time. And the Bible says he's coming quickly. And the Bible says he's going to come like a thief in the night. So we will not know when he comes. When he comes, just like Mephibosheth and Barzillai and Shimei went down the river, he will call all of us to come before him and we will stand before the king. when he's seated upon his throne in all his glory. The question is, how will you be received? It is the consummate question. When Christ comes again in glory, how will he receive you? This is not a question you can ask and say, I do not know. You must know. Will you come before him like Shimei? Will you be the first to scramble down the river? Say, oh Lord, forgive me. Look at, look at the offering that I brought. I got a thousand Benjamites with me and Zeba to boot. Will you engage in a last minute ministry? A last minute confession? If you try, it'll be too late. It will be too late. When the groom comes for his bride, the door will be shut and no one else will be let in. That means, simply put, if you have not in this life confessed your sins to holy God, received forgiveness from him through the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have not followed Christ out of your love for him and overwhelming gratitude for the work that he's done for you, if you have not received his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit and truly been born again, then you will be shut out. And like Shimei, you will be put to death. But that death is not just going to be physical, it'll be spiritual. It'll be the second death the Bible talks about. It'll be the eternal death in the lake of fire 
that goes on forever and ever. This is a fearful thing. This is a real thing. I know churches don't talk about it because it's so hard to talk about. This doctrine of hell is a hard doctrine. Shimei thought he could fool David. He did not fool David. Many in the church, they think they can fool Christ. You will not fool Christ. You will not fool him. How glorious if we find ourselves coming before the king like Mephibosheth. How glorious if we're received by the king as Barzillai was received by the king. Knowing that with sincere and broken hearts we've come to him in great love and adoration. Knowing that we really have been radically generous with our time and our money and our lives. That we poured ourselves out for the king. That we were eager for his return. That we came to the river and we escorted him back because we want him. We want his presence. We want his sovereignty. How glorious to be received like Mephibosheth or Barzillai or Orah or Mary. And to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I did what I could. And he'd say, yes, you did. Well done. Well done. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said, look. He says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon and my reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. How you relate to Jesus Christ right now means everything. It means everything. If you know him now as Lord and Savior, if you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you desire to see his will be done, if you long for the kingdom to come and to do his work, if you move to the Bible to hear him speak and you long for the word that you might hear the words of Christ, if you've surrendered to him and you say, he is my Lord and my King, And when you come into his presence, there will be blessings, many blessings, now and forever, because you have eternal life, because he has saved you. But if you resist till the end, if you continue in your rebellion and sin, trying to save yourself through your good works or through your confession or through your church attendance or maybe, maybe baptism or communion, if you do that, if you try to work out your own salvation without Christ, then you will be like those in Revelation 6.16 when they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. You'll ask God. You'll ask to be hidden from God on that great day of judgment. I don't know a pastor that takes any pleasure in the teaching and preaching of the doctrine of hell. I know not one. When Christ comes, we will come before him and he will receive us based upon how we have received him now. If you don't believe that, I pray that you would ask God to give you that faith, because one day you will.
we have an opportunity right now. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're a Methuselah or a Barzillai or a Mary or an Orop, if you know the Lord, then we're going to take communion. And this, this holy ordinance, it represents his broken body and his spilled blood. It represents the sacrifice that he made to redeem sinners like us, to bring us in, to give us hearts that truly love and worship God. And if the men would come forward, I want to read to you. This might seem odd to you as a, a communion passage. You know, usually we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we read about that. But to prepare your hearts to receive the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ in light of this teaching, I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus explains to us how he will receive people when he comes again in glory. He makes it plain and clear. So I'm going to read through this. Listen. And then we will pass out the elements. And then we'll close. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now listen closely, saints. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Those who truly know Christ now will live as Christ lives. Now, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me no food, I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked you did not clothe me. Sick in prison and you did not visit me. They will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous 
into eternal life.